Welcome to the Principled Podcast, brought to you by LRN. The Principled Podcast brings together the collective wisdom on ethics, business and compliance, transformative stories of leadership, and inspiring workplace culture. Listen in to discover valuable strategies from our community of business leaders and workplace change makers. Hello again, and welcome to another episode of LRN's Principal Podcast. My name is Ben DiPietro. I'm the editor of LRN's ENC Pulse newsletter. I hope you can find that and subscribe. My guest today is Mary Shirley, Senior Director, Ethics and Compliance at Fresenius Medical Care. Based in Boston, Mary has a large international footprint of experience, having held global ethics and compliance roles across the world. She also hosts a popular Great Women in Compliance podcast with Lisa Fine, and they're coming out with a Great Women in Compliance book. Welcome, Mary. Thank you so much for having me, Ben. It's such a pleasure to be here. It's nice to be with you again, too, at least virtually and uh, where we live (laughs) right now. How are you doing with everything, with all that, managing through this strange time we're living in? Pretty well, I think. Thank you. I'm an introvert by nature, so I am very much enjoying the work from home. And I also have a a pretty long commute when I go into the office. It's about three hours round trip. I live in Boston City, but we're based in the suburbs, western suburbs in Waltham. So I am loving my schlep from bed to workstation area compared with normal. What sparked your interest in ethics and compliance? And talk briefly about your career path and how you ended up at Fresenius. Like pretty much everyone of my vintage and older, I fell into compliance. As many of you know, it wasn't something that you could choose to practice in or focus on when at school. So I started out my career in New Zealand working for regulators in the areas of data privacy and antitrust. And I was an investigator, which were pretty good core foundational skills because oftentimes we find those subject matter areas and that skill set of investigations within compliance departments. And I originally went to Singapore, actually kind of on a whim. I didn't really know anything about Singapore before I decided to move there. And I pretty much gave my notice at work and packed up my apartment, let it out to tenants and went to Singapore within about a period of a month. I went there to practice antitrust in a law firm. But what I found after about three months is that I was in a very expensive city, not making great money, and I didn't have any friends. So it was super lonely. And I thought, what am I doing? Basically being in almost exactly the same position as I was in before, but working and sleeping and that's it. So I thought, well, I could just go home. That would be the easy option. Or I could see whether there are other opportunities for me here overseas. And within a period of two and a half weeks, I'd signed a contract to commence an in-house position to join the compliance department of Tata Communications. And so that's what led me to the anti-corruption area, a good specialization in the FCPA. So I took that opportunity with relish and ended up moving for another role to the Middle East where I was in Dubai working for Agreco, which is a utilities company which is headquartered in the UK, specifically Glasgow. And that was great for getting some specialization in the UK Bribery Act, which was pretty hot off the press at the time. 
And then I ended up moving back to Asia to work in compliance consultancy for a while and try that aspect of practice, which was pretty cool. I I like that it's a nice balance between almost working in a law firm versus working in-house. You get the best of, of all worlds in consultancy. When I was in that role, I met a gentleman named Mark Stanley, who had transitioned from Walmart and was moving to a company I hadn't heard of before called Fresenius Medical Care. And Mark was building out his team and he asked if I would like to join it. And I thought it was a fantastic opportunity. Another company that had self-reported to the US regulators prior to my joining. And so it was all very exciting and interesting. It's a German dialysis company And uh, I have now been at the company for five and a half years. And there was once a time where I'd been with the company for only three years and been based in three different countries working for Fresenius. So this is my most settled I've been so far with three and a half years in the United States. And I also went back to Singapore during my time with Fresenius. So that's, that's the journey. I'm looking forward to where it takes me next. Yeah, it's taken you a lot of places so far, it seems. How has that experience then of working in these different parts of the world influenced the way you approach ENC? How much can you take from one region and effectively use in another? Or must each place have an approach that's crafted based on the unique characteristics of that location only? One of the first things I do when I move to a new region is look up what the festivity periods are. Uh, that's good common sense if you're living somewhere new because then you know how to, one, plan your holidays. But two, as an ethics and compliance practitioner, a lot of those major festival periods are going to be opportunities for good education and training surrounding gifts, meals, and entertainment practices. And if you do not know what those practices are, you're not going to be asking the right questions. So that's one of the first things that I do. And it doesn't matter which area of the world you go to, you're essentially digging for the same kind of information. And I'll give you an explanation or an an example as to why I think that's critical. My anecdotal experience has been that if a cultural practice is very sacred and dear to a society, they typically will not consider that compliance policies apply to that situation unless you expressly address it because it's something that's so entrenched in culture. That means that if you're a compliance officer and you don't know about it, you won't be able to ask the right questions and educate accordingly. Let's move to talk a little bit about COVID. It shifted work to the home. And so how does that change what you do to ENC as it relates to training, communications? maintaining a sense of team and how do you keep a speak up culture with people in their houses now as opposed to being together? Whenever someone makes a complaint, generally they want to be heard. When you're an employee, you want to be seen and you want to be valued. And as managers and supervisors, I think a lot of people don't show this enough. So one of the things that I've done whilst we've been in this period of work from home and wanting to be able to show appreciation within the confines of social distancing has been to order things like edible arrangements or a gift from me to my staff and a note basically directly saying uh, that they're appreciated, but also putting in points, listing positive attributes about that person. So letting them know what it is specifically that I think they bring to the team what it is that's enjoyable working with them and send that off to their homes. I think that's important more than ever, but I think it's important outside of a COVID context as well. I always think getting a little surprise treat either in your letterbox or to your door is a good way to make someone's day. 
In respect of your question about how we deal with our audiences now, that is something that I have been thinking on a lot in terms of speak up. And one of the, I don't think issues is the correct word, but one of my observations is that companies tend to really put focus on addressing the issue of retaliation in a way to encourage a speak up culture. And I think that's critical because oftentimes it shows up as the number one reason why people are reluctant to make compliance reports, but it's not the only reason. And so another big one is that people think that it's futile, that if they do speak up, then nothing will be done about it. So I wanted to take a twofold approach to a communications campaign whilst we've been in this virtual context. And so I'll share with you this two-step process and what it aimed to achieve. So the first was setting up a lunch and learn called Behind the Scenes Investigations. And that was inviting one of my colleagues from our compliance investigations team to sit with me, almost like a great woman in compliance interview. And I would put to her questions like, so tell me what actually goes on in an investigation so that colleagues can listen to it and and sort of have that mystery lifted because investigations for compliance people, they're so de rigueur to us. But for your average non-compliance staff member, there is a a sort of an air of secrecy surrounding them. And so there should be because they're confidential. But that doesn't mean that you can't be transparent about the process and the types of things that go on. So in conjunction with this interview, which was to indirectly convey, hey, We have an actual subject matter expert team of staff who deal with investigations. If you make a report, there are specially trained people to deal with that, and they are objective. The second follow-up in the series was how to receive a compliance report, and that was a session for managers. However, I invited all staff to that. And this session emphasized non-retaliation and it trained managers on what to do when they receive a, a report, even just really basic things like no matter what you think of the complaint, take it seriously, pass it on to the correct people, whether that be compliance or HR. And by that inclusion of all staff, it was to show, and again, it's that transparency We are holding our managers and supervisors accountable to our standards. We are telling them that retaliation is not okay, and you're all here to see that. And the other benefit is is that people who aren't managers now are oftentimes the managers of tomorrow, and you can't educate too early. So I wanted people to be able to see that, even if they weren't our target audience, to be in the position where they saw us very clearly explaining to managers the repercussions for retaliation. In and of itself, that can be a compliance issue. How can ANC teams work to improve diversity, equity, and inclusion in their organizations? You've alluded to some of it there about what you're doing. Yeah. You know what's been really interesting is over the last wee while, compliance departments seem to have been taking on more of a role beyond some of the usual key tenets of compliance and really addressing more social injustices, moral failings, wider ethical issues that aren't necessarily considered a part of our function or at least haven't been traditionally. And so what has been really encouraging is seeing in the ethics and compliance space a real passion for people standing up and and speaking up about anti-racism, for creating a a new association for members of the risk and compliance community 
for the advancement and, and empowerment of Black counterparts. So what I think is really interesting there is that even if it's not part of your specific job duties, I, what I'm seeing is a lot of compliance officers putting up their hand and saying, yeah, I want to be on our new diversity inclusion committee. I'm going to be the one that suggests to my boss that we need to have an inclusion training. So what I'm I'm seeing is an encouraging is that for those of us who are in compliance, just because it may not be an official part of your job description, one, there are a lot of volunteer opportunities that we have open to us. Two, we have a platform. People see us as being guardians. They see us as being champions for good. Let's use our platforms. And we can also create proposals to bring these types of issues. And I'm thinking, you know, even back to other social justice, hashtag me too, a lot of compliance officers jumped on that and took it formally as part of their portfolio. Why not diversity and inclusion as well? The more people we have working on this, in my opinion, the better. You referenced Black Lives Matter. What's been your experience with that this year? How is it causing you to reflect on the racism you experienced in your own life as an Asian woman? Mm. Yeah, so this was, uh, I, I think, really interesting for me, not necessarily in a good way, the, the Black Lives Matter experience, because what I realized, having only lived in the U.S. for three years, I don't think I understood until very recently the extent of injustice and disenfranchisement for members of our, our Black community. I spoke with a friend about it and I said, I've got this really awful feeling. I can't put my finger on it. Are you feeling it too? And she is an American and she wrote back, yes, shame. And it wasn't that for me. I, I eventually concluded that for me, it felt I had a sense of helplessness about it. I think that was what my negative feeling was. And what I, I think is a, a pretty fair generalization is that typically if there is a, a situation where one minority is being attacked in some way, oftentimes the greatest allies are other minorities because they know what it's like. They can really empathize with being in that situation as well. And so I think for other minorities or others, if you will. And that's how that was explained to me by a colleague when I said I was having trouble with some others who weren't really, I, I felt very accepting of me. And I said, I don't think it's because I'm from New Zealand or that I have Asian heritage and, and ethnic makeup. I just, and I trailed off and she finished the sentence for me and she said, but you're an other to them. And I think that was right. So whenever we have a situation with others, typically they're going to be really great allies because they know what it's like to have been disadvantaged in some way, to have suffered from some kind of racial rebuke. And probably the, the last experience I had of that in New Zealand, I had just graduated law school. So this is probably 2004, 2005. So not terribly historical. And I was on the streets of Wellington, which is not our biggest city, but it's our capital city. It's my hometown and it's pretty cosmopolitan. And a guy yelled out his window at me, go back to where you came from. And his companion, who was a woman, they both looked very respectable people. And I was kind of shocked that these, you know, what appeared to be at least normal people were 
so hateful. So the Black Lives Matter movement was confronting, in a sense, my ignorance for not understanding how bad the situation has been in the United States, a deep sense of empathy and just being sick to my stomach about it. And then, of course, the next reaction is, okay, what is within my power? Yeah, I felt helpless initially, what is available to me? What resources do I have? What kind of voice do I have to be able to support, be an ally, to use our platform? And so this has been something that's been important to Lisa and myself for a long while. And the book that you mentioned earlier has been in the works for some time. So even before the Black Lives Matter movement, we did have a chapter which we loosely titled Diversity Matters because it is important to us. And I know that Lisa and I will continue to be allies and that we will continue to do what we can to move the dial. Let me get you out of here with this last question then, briefly if you can. What prompted the two of you to start the podcast and what are the top two lessons you've learned about women who work in the ENC space? Yeah, so largely that when we first had the idea for the podcast, the voices of women seemed to be missing from the podcast space and compliance. There are a lot of great men in compliance who had set up podcasts and we thought this is excellent. Now we need someone to fill that gap for the women in the industry. So it's as simple as that. Things that I've noticed, the most overarching thing to me has been that women in compliance who are truly great, who are exemplary, and they really excel in their field as well as as being known for amazing thought leaders and very capable. They're also women who I refer to as being very willing to send the elevator back down. So they're the kind of person who, as an executive and has a load of other interests, manages to make time for those following behind them on the career path. So that's probably been the biggest thing that I've noticed. If I can just have one on that one, Ben, because it's so striking to me that these women who are great, they're not queen bees. They don't want to take the ladder away with them. They want to support others and they want to see others succeed. That's a great way to end on this. I really appreciate your time today. That was very interesting. I'm so glad we were able to reconnect again and stay safe and healthy until we can meet again in real life. Lovely. It was a pleasure to be here, Ben, and chat with you. And I ask you to take good care until we meet again. For sure. Thank you so much, Mary. We hope you enjoyed this episode. The Principled Podcast is brought to you by LRN. At LRN, our mission is to inspire principled performance in global organizations by helping them foster winning ethical cultures rooted in sustainable values. Please visit us at LRN.com to learn more. And if you enjoyed this episode, subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen. And don't forget to leave us a review.